Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Before we get to the podcast, I just want to ask you for your help. If you like what we do, if you listen a lot or you listen frequently, but you get something out of it, please give something back. The way you do that is you click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. There is a range of tiers there to suit every budget and every cent we get helps keep these conversations going and the mics on. We rely entirely on listeners. We have no ads. We have no sponsors. There's not, you're not going to hear about mattresses or adverts from the government of Ireland and all of that nonsense that you get in other podcast platforms. But because we don't have that, we need people to pay it forward. There are literally thousands of you listening. So all we need is a handful of you to please pay it forward. A lot of work goes into keeping these shows going, and it's the only source of income we have to do it. So when I say it's the price of a cup of coffee to you, to us, it's so much more. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. We really, really appreciate everybody liking and sharing. But before you finish this podcast, do click on the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise and join us for a month. That's all I'm asking. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. <laughs> Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn, and delighted to be joined on the podcast today by a guest we did have on before a number of years ago, colleague of mine from Maynooth, um, someone who's had a huge impact in Irish, I would say, intellectual, sociology, social policy, um, economics, politics, has had a huge impact on me um, as a mentor, as someone who I really, really respect and has written incredible, important um, scholarship and is engaged in communities. It is Professor Mary Murphy, who is the head of the Department of Sociology in Maynooth University, a current member of the um, Council of State and a former commissioner with the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. And Mary is on because Mary is talking about a new book, which I think is going to be uh, really important for Ireland, but also globally. It is about climate change. It is about social policy, inequality. It is called Creating an Eco-Social Welfare Future. It's published by um, Policy Press. It's available for pre-order. Mary, thank you so much for coming on Reboot Republic today. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because we, we've been having it ourselves and you presented to um, my students there recently and, and it was an incredible presentation on on your book and, and what it is. And um, I know our, my listeners are really engaged with this around the issues of climate change and inequality um, and the ideas of hope and, and, and obviously the challenges. Um, before I start, I just want to... Um, highlight that we are um, in the middle of a significant, I suppose, public, as we know, housing crisis, but a public debate about the question of the eviction ban. There is a petition that I have set up with Uplift, as listeners are probably aware, calling for the eviction ban to be extended for a year. If you can, you could, you, I would like you to sign that petition. If you can, go over to Uplift. It's keep the eviction ban in place. It is really, really important. Um that that eviction ban is extended. So if you can do that, please. Um, Mary, in terms of the book and the outline and I suppose, you know, where we are at now, um, the when we look at the, you know, the COP summits and we look at the the Ireland, Ireland situation and, you know, we have this climate action plan 
Um, and there is clearly, you know, the public understand that a fairly, you know, fundamental level things need to change. But yet there seems to be this kind of gap between reality of what we're facing and what governments say they're doing and what they're doing. And you still have, you know, we saw the the billions in profits from the, the fossil fuel companies and the, you know, the ongoing issue of, you know, capitalism is just continuing. Consumption is just continuing. It's like there's a recognition that things need to change and people feel the need to change, but then there's a cost of living crisis. There's, you know, things are worsening in terms of poverty and deprivation and housing. And, you know, we've migration and, and the challenges of that and, and the need for supporting, you know, migrants and refugees and, and climate in a way is it getting lost within the kind of crisis that we're in post-pandemic? Or where do you think it is in terms of the the public, I suppose, sense of what do they think needs to happen or where is it a priority for them? And politically, what, what do you think is a, a tough opening question? It is indeed. And I, I think sometimes the urgent does drown out the important. Mm. Um, and the solutions to climate change have to be very systemic. Like They have to be about changing the system. Um, and we don't have the conversations that enable us to really get to grips with that. But if you look at any one of the issues that are going on at the moment, you mentioned housing and inequality, migration. If we look at the consequences for, of climate change for migration alone, we will see that we really are only in the halfpenny place right now. The issue of migration as a consequence of climate change will escalate so that we really really don't understand the world that's ahead of us. So I think what the book is really trying to do is at a very structural level, it's trying to make the links between the types of problems that we're experiencing now that you just mentioned. They are an outcome of a particular model of political economy that we have worked with to date. It's one that emphasises the importance of markets. It's one that emphasises the need for growth and it's capitalism as we know it now, a particular form of very virulent capitalism that we often call financialization or hyper-capitalism. And I think we need to locate the debate about climate change in there, in the degree to which what the, the, like the cause of the problem of inequality and the other side of the coin, environmental degradation, can be traced back to a similar problem, which is the type of model we have to run the world, which is capitalism. And if we're not talking about that, we're not really getting to grips with the scale of policy changes that we need really to engage with in order to actually create a momentum that is capable of addressing the kind of sustainable life that we need to have in the future. Um, the book really tries to do that, to, to focus on like what's the problem as I've just addressed it, it's the co-joined problem that both inequality and environmental degradation are linked and are very much an outcome of the structural problems associated with the kind of economic model we have. Therefore, we need a new one. A lot of people would describe it as a transform transformation to a more post-quote orientated or eco-social kind of political economy. But you can call it what you want. And mm. um, that's not really the point. The point is that unless we're talking about fairly significant structural change, systemic change, we're not really talking about tackling climate change. And indeed, we're not talking about tackling real inequality. So the book makes that that argument and an argument for, for a fairly systemic kind of approach to what's needed. And then it makes a very small contribution to that systemic approach by isolating out a very small part of welfare policy and tries to reimagine if you were serious about rebuilding 
a welfare system as part of a new kind of political economy, what would that look like? And the book tries to focus on maybe three key ideas of what I call an eco-social welfare imaginary or trying to imagine what a a welfare state capable of meeting our needs in the future might look like. And I focus on three things, on, on the idea that we need enabling institutions, we need mechanisms to enable people to be really agile, creative agents in their own lives. Mm. We need universal basic services as collective responses to meeting our needs. We need to de-emphasise the individual market-related way of buying housing, buying healthcare, buying care, buying elder care. We need collective universal basic services as the way we meet our needs. And then we always need money. There will always be a role for a more limited role for markets, I would argue. So we need some way of enabling people to have income support, but we need people to get income for work that is socially valued for the contribution, the real contribution they make to making life sustainable. So that means recognising the care work that people do, the democratic work that people do, the environmental work that people do and having a kind of income support, not that pays you not to do these things, but that actually enables you to do these things. And I call that a participation income. And I mean, I, I think in trying to identify what the problem is and one potential way of approaching the solution, then we need to get really real about the politics of trying to make that happen. Yeah. Um, so the last part of the book really looks at, if you were serious about trying to do this, how does change happen? And the kind of, we know we know how elite power works sometimes, but we know that the kind of systemic transformational change we're talking about won't come from elite power. It will only come from putting pressure from the ground up through mobilisation and other forms of activities that can push political elites and the dominant power systems to make those changes. So it has to come very powerfully as demand from below. So it looks at how you do that, what power is from below, what transformation means from below, and then at the various strategies that civil society and communities of communities have used to try and generate that power. In looking at that, it looks very carefully at the role of imagination and ideas. And it makes an argument that really we're missing this. We're missing this trick of that people get mobilised because there's something that they really believe in that's a positive force for change in their lives. And that to some degree, the problem of the left, the problem of political parties right now, the problem of the universities that we both work in, Rory, mm. is that we are not using the spaces that we have to generate kind of institutional imagination or policy imagination welfare imagination, housing imagination that can actually enable people to imagine the world being different and to fight for the world to be different because if you can't imagine it you're not going to fight for it. So being able to articulate how you think it could be different and to put words around very innate feelings that it could be different is really important. The last part of sort of making it happen and, and trying to imagine strategies for change is building coalitions. Nancy Falber is an American political science. There's a saying, necessity is the mother of invention. She says, necessity is the mother of coalition. Mm. And she really, really stresses that the urgent need we have now should make us get over our small differences. So we're very siloed in civil society. You know, we've got housing movements that yeah. you're a big part of. We have an environmental movement, an equality movement, a women's movement, young people 
build it, mobilise. We really need to start joining the dots across all those kind of mobilisations and start doing proper coalition building because it's only when we make sense of all our issues in the larger context of what the bigger problem is that we can begin to identify what we have in common and that actually the, the differences that seem to set us apart are really minor compared to the things that we have in common and the need to work together. So it looks at that, you know, the last chapter kind of is a call, if you like, for particularly for activists and people in the equality and welfare spaces and in the environmental spaces to, to really begin to listen to each other, to really begin to work hard at identifying the common agenda that they have and to find ways to increase their power by multiplying their forces and, and begin, you know, to multiply their ideas, to talk together and to try and sketch out an agenda for change. That's of a scale that's relevant to the type of scale of change that's needed because I think that's the problem at the moment. The scale that's needed is nowhere near like the policy solutions that have been identified at the moment. So they're not going to get us really anywhere near resolving the problem that we're facing into. And as well, it's in a way, you know, you could see at some point, you know, capitalism is taking us and I think it's so important that we do talk about capitalism being the source of, as you describe, you know, the structural source, as you know, you talk about the political economy of capitalism, which is the way it is organized, the way the economy is organized, the way political decisions are made about that economy and society, that it's not like we have this environmental problem over here, and then you have capitalism over there, and we need to sort out this environmental problem. Capitalism is creating that environmental problem. And that if there's not an acceptance or, you know, not an acceptance that we need to educate people and promote that understanding that actually, you know, th- these we're not going to get to the point of solutions without fundamentally changing the nature of how capitalism works. And, and the other thing I would ask, or or is there a point at which you could have a capitalism that is still in place that is, you know, radically reducing its consumption of fossil fuels and, you know, are eliminating them and, you know, operating in the virtual world of, you know, that is consuming us and through our, you know, our minds, you think of the metaverse and all that. There is a form at which, is there a capitalism? Because I even hear, you know, Elon Musk saying, oh, I'm concerned about yeah. climate and, and that, that it's not automatic that in addressing climate, you address the problems of capitalism. Yeah, I mean, there's huge debates about that at the moment. And I, and I suppose, in truth, the dominant um, frame for the debate is about green capitalism or green growth mm. and an argument that, yes, you can have a better form of capitalism, a more environmentally sensitive and sustainable form of capitalism. Personally, I don't believe that's possible. I think it is possible to have a better capitalism mm. with less inequality, with better regulation of, of workers' rights and things like that. But I think the very fact that capitalism requires at its heart... It requires a momentum of growth because it always requires new methods of consumption and new markets for consumption. And that's what's at the heart of the problem. Capitalism needs to make more and more things marketable to make more and more money. And one of the reasons we have environmental and sustainability is that more and more of our lives is consumed in a market process where we're responding by way of like really, really serious money being put into marketing and advertising, we are responding to try and meet wants that are being artificially understood by mm. us as needs. Mm. And that's what cap- that's what's at the heart of capitalism. Yeah. It's make new products, make new markets, create this new wants, 
tell people that they're needs and that you have to have them. So, and that's really what drives a lot of the environmental and sustainability that's at the heart of it. But the other thing that's really important in capitalism is it does produce inequality. And the form of capitalism we have at the moment produces gross, gross inequality and excessive richness, wealth, produces excessive overconsumption. And that type of overconsumption is really driving a lot of environmental destruction as well. So the problem is that the very rich are consuming much more of the world's resources than the poor are either in rich countries and particularly, of course, in poor countries. And that's an aspect of capitalism that I think we often overlook mm. is the degree to which capitalism is based on inequality, which it is, then you're going to produce this drive towards excessive consumption, which we are, and that is itself creating unsustainable. So it's it's creating excessive marketization, commodification of everyday life, and it's creating excessive wealth that's been spent on Crap, basically. Uh, abs- yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, you think about it that the the mo- capitalism itself is based on a continued growth in consumption, mm-hmm. and and that you know, and yeah. and be that consumption of material resources or consumption of our again our minds and all. But but at the heart of it is that constant need, because that is the way companies and increasingly under shareholder capitalism, it ha- if you are not continually raising the value of your shares, the returns to shareholders, you know your company loses. And therefore, there's this constant pressure to, you know, how are you increasing returns? That's why we're seeing the layoffs in the tech sector, because, you know, we have to cut, uh, you know, the, the jobs so that we increase the returns to shareholders. So there is a problem at the heart of our economies that is creating this unsustainability. And the other thing that's within it as well is the question of power, which you always talk about. Because we look at the fossil fuel companies, for example, or, you know, the big producers of, you know, phones or, you know, the, the the things we consume in terms of the big material goods we consume, um, you know, big clothes chains or whatever it is, they have significant power, lobbying power over governments. And they don't want it to change because they want to conti- us to continue consuming. So that question of power comes in as well and influence and the, the power of wealth. Yeah. And we can't underestimate the power of wealth. I mean, if you look at the eight richest men in the world, um, they all control big, big social media companies. So there's the relationship between power, wealth and the production and consumption of knowledge mm. itself that frames what we understand as possible. And and that's part of the problem is that they, they have a control of our minds yeah. and we're cognitively locked, if you like, into a very narrow understanding of what's possible. And that's what the book is trying to do. It's trying to open up and expand our understanding of what might be possible Explain what you mean by the cognitive lock. Okay, well, there's this idea that, you know, if we think of the the role of ideas, um, and I'm arguing we need more ideas, but Mark Bly um, argues that, you know, ideas can be used in three ways. And I would see this book as the first way he used it. Ideas as a weapon almost, where you try and create a war of ideas and you try and reposition people to think differently. So ideas can be used in a very short term way that way. Then you need, once you convince people something is possible, you do need to develop more substantive kind of thinking about how you would put in place that. Mm. And that would be where ideas are used as blueprints for framing what way, what would a future look like? But he argues the most dominant way ideas are used is ideas as cognitive locks, where people are locked in, literally their minds are locked into old ways of understanding that only this system is possible, only capitalism is possible, only this type of capitalism is possible. So that we're, we're really captured by old ideas and we're not really open to new ideas because our, our minds 
through education systems, through mass advertising, through the media, our minds are locked into understanding very, very narrow ranges of what's possible. And is that also part of a fear of the unknown or is it something, is it a psychological a condition? Like, is is it part of how our brains work? Is it part of our, or is this a more sociological I think it's, it's, more, it's I think it's a more sociological concept and it's looking at how structural power, wealth, control over media, control over the construction of knowledge, how that manifests then in everyday life is that we, we are very framed to understand the possibility is a very narrow range of possibilities. So the agenda is set by very few possibilities. We're conditioned in how we think. Yeah, I mean, if like, you know, uh, Stephen Luke's understanding of power was we can understand power as decision making we can understand it as who sets the agenda about the range of decisions that we choose from but the really insidious invisible form of power where it's most strongest is who sets the you know who sets our minds um, about what's actually possible to think about in the first place so the book is definitely trying to and, and work you, at that level you can think in terms about of that reconditioning it, you know? yeah it, it's interesting you think about that even in terms of the housing debate and how when I talk about the possibility of a public construction company or a public, you know, home building agency that literally I'm told on the media, you know, by private developers, you know, you that is never going to happen. You know, that is just crazy. And this is kind of they're seen as being the the ones who determine what's possible or, or what's yeah, not. Yeah. And, and, I, and I would make the same argument about our understanding of welfare, the welfare regime, the welfare state at yeah. the moment is very, very narrow. And it's really dominated by incentives to work that no matter what we do with welfare, it has to enable people and support people and certainly can't block people from getting back into paid employment. That's very narrow understanding of welfare. If we understood welfare as enabling everybody to flourish, enable societal well-being, enable to have a caring society, we'd be doing completely different things with our money to support people to have flourishing, caring lives. And we'd be doing the kind of things I mentioned at the beginning, like we'd be having much more enabling institutions that allow people amplify their lives in lots of ways. We would be having universal basic services and we would be rewarding the work that we socially value things like care work. So we'd have to change the way our income support system works from job seekers payments to more payments that really enable people to participate. And it's not that people wouldn't do paid work as well. Many, many would at various times in their lives. But we all know that life is quite possible in lots of different ways and that if we had a system that supported us to make different choices at different times in our lives, we might lead better lives and that might lead to lesser consumption for the planet, but also it would mean that our communities would be stronger, our democracies would be stronger, and we could be environmental carers, like we could play our own part in maintaining the sustainability of the planet. This is a fundamental, in, in some ways not fundamental, but it's a value shift in how our economy and society is organised. And, you know, you could argue, and I don't know whether you do in this book, that actually the values and principles and rules by which our economy under capitalism operates are actually not the values and principles that as human beings are our natural values, that actually our natural instincts are to care, to love, to protect, to mind, to nurture. 
and yet they're not the values that are yeah, promoted in our yeah. economy. Our, our natural instincts are very reciprocal, I think. They're to see ourselves and to locate our individual selves in the context of our wider society, our immediate family, our neighbourhoods, our communities, and it, it extends out from there. And I think one of the problems at the moment is that capitalism teaches us to value individualism and our mm. own individual independence. And that's where we're, we're pushed to all our lives, the education system, and even forms of feminism that are very compatible with, with capitalism. You know, they, they promote women's work as a way of independent, economic independence and things like that. I think if we, if we really look to what people value, it is mutual interdependence. And when we see that, we see much more stress on collective responses to things and understanding ourselves as part of society and as reciprocal actors who give and take, but who also have the capacity to contribute policy levels, to judge things, mm. to have opinions about things and to be democratic actors. So I think if we valued ourselves as more fuller beings, mm. we would be much, and I think we do actually, but, but we're being, um, cultivated by capitalism, by our education system, our media, our politics, to, to see ourselves as much narrower versions of what we could possibly be. And if we could see ourselves as the wider versions of what we could possibly be, we would be looking for very different things. Absolutely. And valuing different things. And, and you know, uh, uh, reading recently, reading back over um, Kathleen Lynch's and John Baker's uh, book on equality, the inequalities around love, thinking through, you know, how inequality is impacting now and the inequalities around care and even thinking around the inequality of, you know, the work-life balance and, you know, what people can do in their lives when they're, you know, having to work two jobs to cover, you know, rent versus, you know, having huge income and wealth behind you and not have to worry about these things and not having the stress and how that you know, we can't even, you know, have, we can't even love each other. We can't even spend yeah. time yeah. In, in care and care is stress because of the way the system is organized now. And there's a real, in terms of the connection around climate change and a part of the, the opening question was asking, because when you look at in terms of the polls, they're showing that climate change is relatively low in terms of prioritization, um, despite all the, the knowledge around it and, and the understanding. And of course it is, as I think it was Naomi Klein famously said, you know, how can you imagine, um, you know, think, how can you think about, you know, the end of the world when you can't think even to face thinking about the end of the week in terms of facing yeah. the very real, you know, struggles. And, and we're seeing in Ireland now, you know, things like food banks becoming, you know, massive yeah. and, and, mm -hmm. You know, one in yeah. ten, as Bernardo's showed, uh, despite what Leo Vradker claimed uh, not being true, but it absolutely is, one in ten families relying on food banks. That how does, how do because I know it's in there and you talked about this in your presentation that yeah, I think it's, through, it's, through making the changes, we can actually improve the quality of life of those who are... Yeah, I, I think you, you have know. to start... Like, you're right. I mean, people people start their lives from where they're at. Yeah. Um, and if the conversation needs to be as much about what needs to change around... the, And that's why I, I argue an eco-social you know, frame for thinking about climate change and inequality at the same time can be really valuable because eco-social is really about redistributing care, time, work, money wealth, resources. It is about reorganising what we have so we use it better um, and so that there's more equality. And that is better for the environment. You know, it's not only better for people's lives, but it's also better for the mm. environment. Mm. So in some ways, I think instead of saying to people who are struggling in life, 
you've got to be thinking about climate change. It's more about reframing the debate to say people who are thinking about climate change also need to think about people who are struggling in life and see how starting the debate from their perspective may actually lead into a debate about what needs to also happen for climate change. So what's good for one is good for the other. But where you start the debate from can maybe bring more people with you. Um, if you started from people's lives. And I think that's very much, I mean, we saw the Gilets in France, we mm. saw Brexit, we see, we see lots of countries really struggling around implementing climate change policy because they have not started it in the conversation about people's reality and people's lives. So we need to make that connection between the two. And that's why I think making the connection between inequality and the reality of inequality in people's lives and what they're suffering, as you outlined there, and how that does relate to climate change, we need to make that better understood. Um, and I think one way of doing it is talking about changes that are more relevant to people's everyday lives, such as welfare. So I think by situating this debate as an eco-social welfare debate, it can open up a different type of conversation that is impeccably related to climate change, but isn't always how the climate change debate has been framed. And what sort of suggestions do you make around that? Well, very practical suggestions. I mean, one I, I suggested before around universal basic services. So looking at, say, care in Ireland at the moment, 70% of childcare and 85% of elder care is accessed through the market. So people need to be able to get money As in to it's purchase prov- provided it by, by market providers for, for profit. For profit providers. For profit, yeah. yeah. So if we reframed how policy treats care as in childcare and elder care, as a universal basic service. It can be provided maybe by, sometimes by the market, more often maybe by community organisations or as a public service itself. The state's role is is really about regulating and quality standards and funding some of that provision. But it's not necessarily the state's role to deliver it. There can be a wide range of actors delivering it, but you're not delivering it for a profit motive. You're delivering it as a universal basic service as a service that people need, that would completely reorientate how people can access care and how can they, they how they can live their lives then. Um, you can think the same about and housing how or that, transport. How would that improve the, uh, you know, I'm, I'm asking you in terms of, you know, the question people might say, well, how, how does that improve our, the environment or meeting our climate targets? Okay, well, well, at a very structural level, it relates to taking the, the role of excess profit out out of the system of providing universal basic services because quite a lot of profit that's made by capitalism at the moment is actually through the provision of public services and um, about 4 or 5% of GNP. So just taking profit out of the provision of public services does one thing. But I think at a much more and structural level... And is that the theory, level, the theory then that less profit means less consumption yeah, at, I mean, at, at an upper at a, level? Yeah, at a very structural level. But I think at a more... At, the, the level of everyday life, if you like, I think what it does is, because it wouldn't be just care, it would be transport, it would be, uh, you know, things like housing and health. I think if people had their needs met through those kind of provisions, there would be less pressure on them to engage in market activity like poorly paid work or precarious work. Um, and they would have more time to do lives, to live lives that are more balanced in terms of sustainable lives themselves, which would be better for the environment as well. So we're all being called upon like to recycle, to do all the kind of range of 
of life things that we need to do in order to be more environmentally aware and sustainable in our own lives. But we don't have time. We don't have money to do mm. that. So I think by giving people back autonomy, agency over their own lives, through enabling institutions, through meeting their needs, through collective services, rather than them struggling to buy things, by just giving people more time in their lives that they have control over, people can enable themselves to live sustainable lives. Like we talk about food waste, we talk about fast fashion, we talk about all the things that we know are problems. And this isn't trying to put the solution back on mm. it's everybody's fault and we yeah. all need to do better things I totally believe the biggest problem with climate change is the fossil fuel in- industry and no matter how much we all change our individual lives it'll only be a drop in the ocean compared to addressing fossil fuel consumption by industry um, and the fossil fuel industry itself at the same time I think people want to be able to be actors in the climate change debate and the more we can enable people to be actors in the climate change debate as as activists and as making sustainable changes the more people will put pressure on those capitalist actors who also need to be taken out of the equation at a very macro level. And that's about massive global regulation. That's about really, really serious power interventions. And that needs politics. So if we can enable people to live and see different lives and relate themselves differently to climate change, I believe that's necessary in order to create a politics of demand that would really push states to really regulate for a different type of political economy. And in my view, that would go beyond capitalism. Like, you know, I mean, I, I can't see the regulation, the extent of regulation of the fossil fuel industry that's necessary that would be compatible with anything like we understand the idea of the individual freedom to be a market actor. That's at the very, very heart of capitalism. I think we are talking about a different type of political economy where the collective well-being and the collective good is placed at a much higher priority than the individual right to do something. That's really interesting. And just to, I think, back up and um, your point about individuals and ensuring people's basic needs are met in terms of, for example, around care, the issue, of, for example, is not just the extraction of profit, but as you say, like the low wages, for example, like yeah. I, I just, you know, it disgusts me when I, you know, drop my child off at the, the creche. And, you know, I know these workers have been paid like just above the minimum wage and you're going, you know, these are doing incredible, you know, valuable work. They're minding our children, (laughs) nurturing the next generation and we pay them just above the minimum wage. And there is something about, you know, the need in terms of raising, as you say, their living standards and that being part of then also, and this comes to um, the work been done by uh, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett around, they have connected inequality and status anxiety and as a factor behind excessive excessive consumption consumption, as well. And that if you can reduce inequality, you reduce that need to people consume in order to overcome that sense of status, lower status in society. And I think that's a very significant factor um, that, you know, we need to look at, as you say, people to feel better in their lives in having their needs met. There's not then this need to consume. But of course, that drives against the logic of capital, which yeah. is we want people yeah. to consume more and more. Yeah. And we want to find different ways yeah. in which so, they, they will so, consume. Yeah. So so no matter which way you look at it, if you like, like, I mean, both of their books, The Spirit Level and their more recent book, they locate inequality as the driving problem, not not having enough money, but having an unequal distribution of the resources that yeah. you have. And that's really important 
important because what they find is that the more unequal the society, the more likely it is to have serious social malfunction, if you like. But also at the individual level, the more unequal the person um, and the life is, the more you feel the need to consume, you, you feel the need to demonstrate your equality by excessive consumption. And then, of course, we know... It's also to overcome level, the feelings of low self-esteem. Oh, yeah, that, 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 that's created, like the, yeah. That's created by mass media. As, yeah. as we just, so, it's, so when you connect the dots across all these things, what you see is that systemic issue that capitalism causes inequality. And this inequality is really difficult at structural levels, at the level of the individual life. And also it's driving the excessively rich to consume in a hyper precarious way for the planet. And um, yeah. so like no matter which way you you toss it, the inequality that's at the heart of capitalism is serious for society, serious for consumption at an everyday level and seriously because it overconsumes at and you the give, richest levels. You give some of those figures for um, the overconsumption uh, or, you know, the, the disproportionate consumption by the top in society in contrast to the bottom. And I know... Um, the students, when when you're were really struck by that, yeah, and they, they were really saying were, yeah. this completely reframes and and you know students who are you know coming from different backgrounds who are struggling themselves saying this is the first time the climate debate has spoken to me yeah because I haven't the problem hasn't been located in me yeah as something I need to do but actually I'm seeing that it's the rich that have to reduce yeah. their consumption that we actually at levels. Yeah need to be now increased but the type of consumption and this is the question of public services consumption and and but but that issue yeah there is nothing wrong but in terms of quantitatively because i had that question in my head are are, are the rich actually consuming more yeah yeah and not just not just relatively but actually more than the bottom like yeah 50%. 50%. Yeah, I mean, if, 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 I mean there, there's lots of different data that measures this in terms of carbon shadows, carbon footprints, um, that, sh- that shows it in different ways. But one way of thinking about it is the top 1% consume 110 tonnes, whereas the bottom 50% consume one5 so if, if you look at that as a spectrum of difference in terms of what the footprint and the impact of the consumption of the rich is. It's 110 rich, times so, yeah, 100, more carbon virtually footprint. Virtually 110, yeah. yeah. Now, that, that's a global figure. In Ireland, our 1%, if you like, consumes 61 tonnes versus an average of about 4 5% being, uh, 4 or 5 tonnes being consumed by the so bottom 50%. Another way of thinking about that is that, you know, we have this carbon 12 times targets set out and actually the everyday consumption of the poorest is nearly already at the targets set out in our own carbon plan where in terms of per rich, capita consumption in terms of per capita consumption whereas the rich really have to reduce their consumption of 61 tonnes by 97% to get to the 2 tonne target which is the overall average consumption target so the problem is very much and, and the question in my head just mm-hmm. to, to interrogate that a little bit and maybe I'm not getting it is I'm thinking well the 1% are only 1% of the population so if they're consuming 100 you know um, tons per person that's still let's say you know a thousand tons whereas if you have 50% of the population consuming seven tons each they are you know 
still consuming much, much more. Yeah, and so, if, you, if you look at that globally, I mean, you, you can see it in the starkest way that, you know, the consumption of the, the capitalist countries of the West, yeah. if you like, absolutely outpaces the consumption of poorer countries. And yet the impact of the climate change will be felt so, so much within the tropics, if you like. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and we really, we worry about it, but we will be relatively unscathed by the real reality of people dying of drought, dying of drowning, you know, in, in terms Which of the they reality. Are already. They are They're already. already. We've seen yeah. India, we've seen Pakistan. They are already. And like the, the, the disproportionate amount of deaths that they will experience, it's something like literally 99% of deaths will occur in poorer countries because of 99% of the consumption being done. That's not exactly 99, but it's yeah. near there of, yeah. of the richest countries. So the inequality is at the heart of climate mm. change mm. in terms of how it will be experienced and in terms of why it was produced and how it's still being produced and, and going on. So I think that really that conversation between inequality and climate change, it, it makes sense at that macro level, at that very big structure level. But then when you go back to the everyday lives of people, that we can see that if we really, really try and produce a different type of world that has the capacity to be more sustainable, that that actually works better for people who are also experiencing inequality in their everyday lives in the here and now. And that's really important as well, because as you said, at the moment, those people are being made to feel guilty for their lives, yeah. you know, as consumers consumers as contributors to overall climate change when in fact they are not part of the problem they are part of the solution yeah. and the solution will benefit them yeah. so we need to have that conversation and frame it in a different way that people can see this is not a threat to their lives and they are not a threat to the planet but we we can act in solidarity together with poorer people in other countries to make the world a better place and we will all benefit from that the super rich may not so be it and, and the point as well, I think, you know, in terms of the dystopia that's ahead of us and the, you know, potential for, you know, major, major climatic events, not the potential, there is going to be, um, that in our response to that, you know, that if we don't make these changes, the response is likely to be even more dystopian. And, you know, the inequality and, you know, we, again, um, Elon Musk's idea, you know, to build a spaceship off mm -hmm. off the planet to, you know, as a place where the rich could basically go to. And the supposedly, you know, well, we know there are in New Zealand and places like that, the billionaires are building their mm -hmm. bunkers. And there is that question of, you know, we need to understand that there are major already, you know, and you know, the refugee crisis gives us some sense of it. The pandemic gave us some sense of it. And the pandemic gives us at some level Hope on the one level in terms of how we responded, but then on the other hand, the billionaires kept, you know, they made more profit during the pandemic than ever and things didn't structurally change. But, you know, there was real community responses. We didn't make an austerity response. We invested in welfare and supported people. Um, and to a certain extent now with the cost of living crisis, obviously not enough. But there is something about us understanding that we need to be making changes now and understanding that if we don't structurally change our economy and society now, when that crisis hits, the response could be horrifically yeah, unequal. We, and, and Yeah, we did work, um, you know, to try and better understand the type of changes that happened during the pandemic. And one of the, 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 the ways that we, we kind of felt that we got a better understanding was that crises don't, they're not really opportunities for change. 
in the way that we think of them and the mm. way we say that. What they are are times when the type of change that is already happening can get really accelerated. Okay, so you nearly you have you have to have the change ready before the crisis if you're going to be able to get momentum for that change during a crisis. And as we're coming into a, almost a permanent crisis scenario, the, fa- the the direction that we're facing in as we move into the crisis is massively important. So we really need to reorientate the space in which we are facing as a society so that when the crisis comes, the space we move in will be democratic, will be orientated around reducing inequality and will be about people's lives. Mm. Because there isn't, there is the possibility that if we're not facing into that space, we could be facing into an autocratic space, um, where, where it is more dystopian, where the rich will you know, benefit themselves and save themselves and, and a lot of the people will suffer. So I think that that's really important. I mean, that's a lesson I learned from the pandemic was things like, um, e-health, for example, or remote working or, uh, blended education and hybrid education. These things were all on the edge before the pandemic yeah. and the pandemic accelerated them, but they were ideas that people were promoting the technologies that have been developed and that. So we need to be ready now. And that's one of the really important things of the book. Um, it comes from an expression in the New Deal in the 1930s in America, where again, the, that, that massive financial depression that happened in America uh, came out of it, uh, the, the fundamental rubrics of the welfare state in America, really. But that only happened because people were ready. They had already got the ideas about what you needed to do to restore America. And those ideas became the dominant debate. I think the kind of ideas I have in the book, what I'm arguing is we need to be ready now. We need to identify the direction of travel and we need to identify the first couple of steps that we need to take. We can't possibly imagine what this future is going to look like, but we can put in place now things like universal basic services, enabling institutions, participation income. Those rudimentary things can enable us to face a direction of travel that we need to be in with greater confidence that what we will try and create during that direction of travel is equality, is a system that can replace capitalism with a more environmentally sustainable and more humane system than we have at the moment. But I I, I would worry that we're not having those debates and we're not creating the coalitions of mobilisation across the kind of common interests that we really do have um, as progressive actors in any kind of sphere, trade unions, women's groups, environmental groups, poverty groups, housing, that we need to be talking to each other now in order to promote the momentum of change and to get that face on the direction of travel, to turn the compass towards where we want the future to go. Yeah, uh, th- there's a number of things going around my head. I'm thinking on the one hand, you know, that question of capitalism is, you know, one of, in a way, it's almost a theoretical debate because, you know, whether we argue, you know, well, you have to understand and, and we have to think about and theorize and identify that capitalism is at the root of it. Even if you're right, and even if we convince people that it doesn't necessarily bring change or offer a strategy for change, and that the strategies for change come back to the issues that people are willing to fight on or campaign on or take action on, and 
that that you know and you're setting out some there yeah that's and that's often what people value like you know what they deeply value and if those issues aren't speaking to people you know in the language that they can understand and are relevant to their everyday lives then they're not going to mobilise with it so I think that's some of the problems with, with trying to orientate mobilisations about climate change is that they're not brought down to the issues that people want and what I'm trying to do there is talking about things like care welfare, time, money, work. Mm. They are the things that dominate people's lives and they are the things that need to be reorganised and redistributed in order that we can all live better lives that are more sustainable for the planet. Then I think they are the things we need to talk about. But we need then to be able to relate those things to how they make sense to the type of world we need to create in order to be able to tackle climate change as well. Like We need to bring the conversation up again to systemic levels. And the question, of course, is power and who holds power and how do you challenge that power? Because the CEOs of corporations and the shareholders and all, you know, large businesses and the the think tanks and the economists and the are not going to go, do you know what, Mary, you're dead right. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And, the book, the and book, you know the book, what? The book kind of says that. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, no, we'll just relax here now and yeah. sit back and. Uh, it's very hard to be hopeful about that kind of change that I'm talking about happening and to be also realistic about the power imbalance that's there between the rich and the poor. Um, and I am realistic about the wealth of power that they have um, and how difficult it is to shift it. And really, I think the biggest tool that we probably have is our own mobilisation and also democracy. But democracy is in a very perilous state right now because mm. it has been really injected with with the the poison of, of that power and wealth. Um, the book talks about a concept called high energy democracy. And it's where the institutions of democracy can be strengthened in some way to parallel and to complement the mobilisation of people. So it talks about representative democracy being shored up and strengthened with participatory democracy and deliberative democracy. It talks about representative democracy needing to extend voting enfranchisement, for example, to younger people to bring them into the representative system. It talks about the potential role of things like citizens' assemblies and other types of deliberate assemblies being real opportunities for people to be democratic actors. It talks about the need to really reform local spaces, local government, local democracy, so that people can see being part of the decision-making of their everyday lives about those local public services, about what needs to be done environmentally, about that local area that that needs to be a very high energy space for democracy. Um, and I, I, I would be really serious about that, that, that if we can't restore the function of democracy and its relevance to everyday life, then we're on a hiding to nothing. So restoring democracy and really getting those links between participatory, deliberative and representative democracy rich you know, really, really rich and meaningful in people's lives is really important. The role of universities in that, we could talk, we could have another podcast about that. But I do think that, I mean, there's a, there's a Brazilian, Roberto Ungar, who coined the phrase high energy democracy. But I think a large part of the problem is now our democracies are not speaking to us. They're not serving our interests. We don't see ourselves as actors in them. It's a very low energy approach to the concept of democracy, but it can be different. There's examples in the world right now where it is different and where people wake up in the morning and democracy is part of their day, be it in the workplace, in the school or as the citizen or as the local government. They are 
active citizens in their own lives. And that's what I mean by enabling institutions to some respect, that the welfare system, the democratic system, the education system, the labour market system, they have to enable us to be higher energy actors, to live more amplified lives because we are our future. And if we're not living and taking and shaping that future, then somebody else is going to shape it for us. Absolutely. And it it strikes me that... um you know, when you, when you think about this and the school student strikes and how important they were to push the imagination of and yeah. demand that something, you know, different was required and possible. And I think they played a pretty fundamental role in shifting at some level policy and policy makers, at least notional acceptance, we have to do something here. And I think pushed a lot of people as yeah. well to think about this. And there's something about, you know, I know there's another strike planned for, I know they're having weekly, you know, they have yeah. their weekly uh, school strike and, you know, Greta Thunberg is, you know, and many, many others. And, you know, you've Extinction Rebellion um, doing, you know, you know, important work. There was the, you know, the protests in Germany over the, the coal mine. And there there is that action that we need to support more of. Yeah. Those actions, even when it might feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Or, and, and or, or meaningless. I mean, sometimes you can or, scoff at people who are doing things or think, well, they're not going to get anywhere. But I think it's, it's about understanding where hope comes from. Yeah. Um, and not, not pretending to be optimistic about the world because you can be optimistic and do nothing. Um, just because you're, you have an optimistic disposition, if you like. Yeah. But hope comes from doing stuff. Hope comes Absolutely. from action. Yeah. It comes from trying to make the world that you want and not necessarily always thinking that you're going to be successful in that moment of action, but knowing that by simply trying that you can be hopeful that someday you'll be part of a tipping point because we never know when those tipping points will be and as you say the Fridays for Futures kind of movement it did create some tipping points and it's only by action and by people creating those tipping points collectively through those kind of mobilisations that the world will change and personally I get hope from that from trying to be part of that change. Um, and that's why I think things like a higher energy democracy and enabling institutions that give people back the time to be democratic actors, you know, that, that educate people how to be democratic actors and that really enable spaces where the democratic actors can come together to, to create that power. Because the power of, as you say, wealth, industry, fossil fuel industries is so immense. It's so um, and, and let's be realistic about that. But let's also be hopeful about the power that potentially we can have as democratic actors. And it has been demonstrated throughout history that, you know, people have massive power. You know, yeah. people have power to change. They've changed governments, changed, you know, in terms of mobilization, collective action. Yeah. That that is a real power, and 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 you know I'm looking here at um you know it's March third is the next global day of action, um and Fridays for Future globally have called for the ending of fossil finance, and um as I say tomorrow is too late, and I'm nearly sure there's going to be an action at the doll on that day, um outside, and there's something outside the doll, and there is something about us taking that action together, and and when you look at you know coalitions and hope you know the ireland for all demonstration and and gathering you know celebration was an incredible day and within that was the the demand that that we're different in how our society is and i think that within that there's possibilities of connecting 
you know, yeah. climate and environment in there and in, in what type of Ireland we have. And, and in particular, as you say, you know, you know, there is going to be more refugees coming as a result of climate. And, you know, are we going to say, oh, no, you know, you're not coming in while, you know, your countries burn. We're just going to build walls here. Like, yeah. what? what? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you're right about that. I mean, it's it's it's. I was at the march as well, and and the the hope that was at that march, mm. and the joy and yeah, and the happiness yeah. that was at that march. It was. And, it was, and people, it was just the, people, the buzz, like getting, the hairs were yeah, standing on the end yeah. of your neck. But also, thing, people getting energy back from yes. doing something, yeah. and that's that's to me was people getting energy from playing a part and saying. This is the kind of society I want. Yeah. This is what I value. This is the future I want. And those kind of conversations cannot be like we we can't emphasize enough how important they are that individual people and you get energy back from that. You get momentum from that. You get you get you get rewarded from from that type of thing and you get hope and that's really important. But I do the, 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 the you know that that issue of it was about the reception that we're given to people who are migrating into Ireland now for for different reasons for war, for political persecution, for different types of asylum, but also for climate, you know, yeah. already. Um and there, there is talk at United Nations level of needing to amend United Nations refugee and asylum seeker guidelines to make climate migration a much more explicit reference as a legitimate reason for relocation and for seeking asylum and refugee status. So we're only at the halfpenny place now. I mean, you know, like I mentioned earlier that it's between the topics that climate change will be experienced, where people will die, literally. We're likely to experience the biggest impact of climate change actually from the migration of climate refugees to the global north, where there will be less impact of very direct um, weather warming. Um, and, and that, you know, we, we need, you know, we, we need to understand if we don't play our role in trying to reorientate the world to manage the inequalities that drive climate change, then We'll, we'll, we'll take it on enough of the, in another way. And also then connects directly to housing as well. It does. Because yeah. mm-hmm. people don't need the fundamental need of a home and they can't live without that. And, and how we're, our whole housing and property and finance and land system is organised currently yeah. where you have hundreds of thousands of It's not organised to meet need. No. Clearly it's Either not organised to meet need. Either human need or planetary yeah. need. And that's why I think that that concept of a universal basic service, I mean, it's kind of common sense and it's, it can be it can be just trod off the tongue. But when you start to unpack the structural changes we would need to make to things like land ownership to actually achieve a universal basic need for housing, I think it, it's quite fundamental. And when you look at care as universal basic need or transport, it really helps us to say, well, if we were trying to meet collectively, meet, meet people's needs. Or food now. We food, yeah. Like any of it. I mean, I think it really does make us realise that actually we could think about this differently. Yeah. Could approach that. We have enough resources. It's how we distribute them that matters. How we organise them practically so they meet need, not want. Yeah. Very clearly not want, but they meet basic needs. That's important. And a manufactured want. A manufactured want that we, yeah. To feed profit. And the problem is it's so, it's so subtly manufactured that we think it's need a lot of the time. Yeah. No. Yeah. And that's, that's what's really sad. Yeah. Mm. Well, listen, Mary, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on and I really uh, enjoyed the conversation and I know our listeners will have got a lot out of it. Um, so the book is coming out. On the 18th of May, it's been launched on the 18th of May in the Mansion House and it's for sale as a pre-order on the Policy Press book website. And just to say, I mean, I wrote that book not not to be an academic, if you like, but to create conversations. And I'm really happy to, to bring that conversation anywhere to local book clubs, community groups, you know, women's groups, 
universities, schools. Like, I really want to be part of this conversation. And the media. In- <laughs> and the media, and the media, yeah. Because I, I was, I was <laughs> thinking during our conversation. No, 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 absolutely. And these are Well, all, like, you know, I actually think those kitchen table conversations yeah, are yeah, really they are. important. Yeah. So it's actually, I really want to talk to people. Yeah. Not yeah. always through the media, but I think the direct engagement in discussion and debate is really yeah. important. No, you're absolutely right. And it's something someone was pointing out recently, you know, that the, the positivity and hope in Ireland is we're, you know, fortunately of such a size as a country that we still have community, we still have connections everywhere that people talk, people still talk to each other. Yeah, yeah. And that I mean, re- yeah. gives a real possibility yeah. for change and yeah. change in values. I remember being on primetime or something on a, on a, you know, a, a mainstream politician of our centre-right party saying to me, like, why do you all hate Ireland so much? And I was really shocked because I was saying, but I absolutely love Ireland. You know, I love living here. I, You know, yeah. I really hope my kids stay living here. Yeah. But I think Ireland could be better. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know, like, so it is, it's always, yeah, that you're being framed as, as a negative input. Yeah. But actually, it, this book is very positive. It's very hopeful. Yeah. It's, a, it's really about celebrating life. It's about the joy of living and wanting everybody to have the joy of living. Yeah. Great. Listen, Mary Murphy, check it out. Uh, listeners, thank you so much. And as I said uh, earlier, if you can, sign the petition um, to keep the eviction ban in place. It's over on Uplift. Um, and as always, we ask you, share the podcast around if you can. Let people know um, it's a real resource. And we've had a couple of podcasts recently, which I would really encourage you, if you're interested, to check out. We spoke to Dean Scurry, Claire O'Connor and Dara Adelaide in the Ireland for All, who were involved in organising that. A really good conversation about where Ireland for all can go now and the hope of that Um, and also we talked to um, a number of artists based in Galway about their um, Fela housing uh, festival they're organising on the 11th and 12th of March in Galway and I'm speaking at a pre-festival event in Charlie Burns bookshop on Sunday the March 5th at 6 o'clock and some really uh, and Bridget May Power the musician is going to be singing um, a few songs at that which is great I'm looking forward to that so some really um, interesting and exciting things happening and as always if you can support us we are an independent podcast produced by Tortoise Shack uh, Tony Groves if you can go over to patreon.com support us help us to keep this show on the road thank you so much everyone and we will talk to you all very very soon <laughs>